before the neighbors start stomping around again upstairs. What's going on, y'all? CA here, and I want to let you in on a little secret before this episode. If you ever wondered how I got so many interviews from folks all across the U.S. so easily, it's mostly thanks to Zencaster. Zencaster is an all-in-one online podcasting platform that allows you to record your guests at high-quality MP3 or WAV files on separate tracks to make your podcast editing streamlined and easy. And now, if you haven't guessed it already, a lot of thought is proud to be hosted on Zencaster's brand new creator platform, which means if you all need to do any remote recording for your own podcast, I got the goods, and there they are. I got the goods to help you get started with Zencaster today. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code Thought, no spaces. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. Zencaster, it's time to share your story. <clears throat> All right, add over and let's get to the show. Native people have been racialized differently in relationship to whiteness than have black people because native people and black people needed to do different things for the white power structure. Their one drop rule applied with black people to proliferate numbers of black bodies because they were enslaving them and using them to create wealth out of the land that they stole from natives. miles outside the border of Seminole Nation in Oklahoma, situated between the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Muscogee Nations, sits the Davis Correctional Facility, a medium-maximum prison owned and operated by the company CoreCivic. One of three remaining private for-profit prisons in the state, Davis Correctional Facility houses 1,600 inmates in Holdenville, Oklahoma. Prior to 1898, when Holdenville became a small municipality, it was a Muscogee settlement in Indian Territory. In 2015, black folks made up 8% of Oklahoman residents, but constituted 25% of the state's incarcerated population. Oklahoman inmates earn wages anywhere from 5 cents to 54 cents an hour for work ranging from facility maintenance to building furniture for companies that lease the inmates' labor from CoreCivic. Anything beyond that half dollar is siphoned into CoreCivic's revenue stream, which also annually charges the state about $16,000 per inmate housed in its facilities. Davis and the other CoreCivic prison in Oklahoma, Cimarron, collectively house 3,250 inmates, $52 million worth of convicts. CoreCivic operates over 65 state and federal penitentiaries throughout the U.S. Just over 31,000 square miles. That was the land promised to the Cherokee, Muscogee, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations by the federal government after the Indian Removal Act was passed in 1830. 100,000 Indians and the 4,556 black people they enslaved were recorded among those forced to walk the Trail of Tears. By 1890, 24.9% of inhabitants in what would become Oklahoma were Native American. Ten years later, that figure dropped to 8.2% as the United States and its white settlers expanded west. This is the first chapter of Lotto Thought's three-part miniseries, In Our Blood. 
halves, quarters, eighths. Blood calculus is what led to the dissolution of indigenous sovereignty, the narrowing and criminalization of blackness in a post-emancipation United States, and is what divides our intertwined histories today. When I began developing this mini-series, my approach was concerned with bodies, with blood. But you can't talk about who counts as black or native without talking about religion, tribal kinship, war, slavery, and most of all, land. The story of blood quantum and the one-drop rule is, in a nutshell, the story of America. Of how treaties and laws are created, circumvented, and then rewritten to continually erase native bodies and keep black bodies out from white society. As we try to better understand blood, time itself collapses. Events centuries and miles apart continue influencing each other in our past, present, and future. In order to get a full picture, you'd have to keep in mind the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, Allen v. the Cherokee Nation in 2006, the end of the Civil War in 1865, the bombing and massacre of Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, John Horse and Coacochi's escape from Castillo de San Marcos in 1837. In so many ways, blood is time. Blood is space. So sit back and relax, and bear with me as we try to start this story with blood itself. I'm your host, C.A. Davis, and this is A Lotto Thought, in our blood, chapter one. Genocide in slow motion. Okay, so yeah, we can, we can just hop out. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when a lot of thought was just a little idea, I flew to Duke University with my friend Lex Ward, who helped produce our visit. We were there to interview Dr. Sarah Gaither at the Duke Diversity Lab, and also a few students who were part of Swirl, a mixed race student group at Duke University. Okay, um, so my name is Monica Desjardins. Um, do you want to know like why I'm here at Duke or where I come from? A year and a half later, here I am, recounting that visit. But not because of anything we were focused on back then, of course. Position it down. Give me one, two. One, two? Perfect. Got it. My name is Monica Desjardins. I am from Chandler, Arizona. My mother is full Navajo and my father is full Haitian. But like people denying me that I'm Native American. My mom said when she was like growing up, it's just about keeping like, um, I guess like the Navajo like blood like pure in a sense or like keeping the clans going. Um, so like, if you ask somebody who identifies as mixed race about their embodied racial identities, you're probably going to hear some fractions or percentages rolled around. A common practice people readily accept without any real consideration of where that language comes from. There is this common myth that circulates 
among Native people, including among scholars, even Indigenous scholars, that ideas of blood and the importance of blood were simply imposed by colonial authorities. I do not think that's true. This is none other than Kim Talbert, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples' Technoscience and Environment at the University of Alberta and member of the Sisseton-Wapton Oyate. Across time and space, blood has been seen as a life force. When people hunted, when they butchered animals regularly, when we didn't have the kinds of elaborate sewage systems that immediately flush everything away from us when a person's monthly blood doesn't come, that's got something to do with life. You wouldn't have been dying off in a hospital away from the people. You would have been dying among the people, being born among the people. Blood would have been everywhere. Blood quantum has many definitions that are dependent on the social and historical context in which it's being defined. The most simplistic definition is the counting of a person's tribal ancestry. But that doesn't come close to containing the centuries of violence, coerced labor, or land infringement that were determined by the supposedly immutable differences between indigenous, black, or white blood. Mixing means something completely different in a pre-colonial context versus after the arrival of European colonizers. It's not about the mixing of people from different, quote-unquote, racial groups. It's not about the concept of race. The concept doesn't exist. This is Doug Keel, member of the United Nation Turtle Clan and assistant professor of history at Northwestern University. It's well documented that in certain Oneida villages, most of the people were not actually of Oneida origin. Haudenosaunee people would, would take captives from neighboring communities, and those individuals would, in many cases, come to replace kin who had died either through disease or warfare. I don't think we should discount the importance of blood and blood relations before and after colonization. Blood is often considered an important way of making kin by many Indigenous people, obviously. We have children, we have offspring, but there are many other ways to make kin. Somebody could take captive a Huron person who eventually becomes adopted into their new Haudenosaunee community and becomes a complete member of that new society. There's really important examples where people who have been adopted through such means, in some cases, become powerful, important community leaders. I wouldn't want to suggest that it's just as simple as that. There's some level of a a sense of difference and maybe sort of second-class distinction, right, in some cases, but not always. But to make blood relations the only relations that count, the fractions on paper, that's what the colonizer imposed. It's a very long and gradual process. 
blood increasingly becomes first a mechanism of European and then later American colonialism. And then only from there does it gradually become language within Indian country. It comes to define our own sense of self. The beginning of Spanish colonization of the Americas is rooted in ideas of Christian superiority, a rightful, just conquest of uncivilized people, identifying whether one is, you know, uh, whether one is Christian or not. That is the determinant of whether or not one is civilized. The early 1500s, the dawn of the new world, or depending on whose perspective you're centering, the beginning of the world's end. From the moment in 1492, when Columbus landed in the Caribbean, two worldviews immediately and violently clashed. Christian values of individualist ownership, salvation, and burgeoning ideas of so-called economic freedom bolstered colonizers' desire to acquire land, whereas many indigenous belief systems understand the world and her resources as a shared communal home. There wasn't a common ideological ground off of which colonizers could capitalize in order to establish trade or create permanent colonies. And so conversion was an attempt to, quote, civilize indigenous people to justify imposing economic and social control. Initially, we have ideas of Christian superiority that really are predominant and are in place before hardened ideas of race. And so colonizers question, does uh, becoming Christian then make them civilized? This is where ideas of blood and race come into play to create a permanent category that says, no, despite having Christian education, they still could never be as civilized as Europeans. And increasingly that's on the basis of it's in the blood. It's just innate to who they are. Because for those indigenous people who did convert to Christianity, individualism was never really fully accepted. And so no matter how hard missionaries tried to save the man, colonizers killed the quote, Indian savage for their land. Genocidal acts were excused, if only in part, because of the concept of immutable differences within blood. This is all kind of misleading, right? Blood quantum isn't really concerned with biological blood, so much as it is concerned with policy and... Land. Colonizers wanted land. Get rid of the Indians, and you can get the land. When Europeans began colonizing the Americas, indigenous warriors defended their people using their knowledge of the land as their most effective weapon. Guerrilla warfare was so devastatingly effective against conventional European line infantry that outright war was not an effective means of acquiring and policing land of the New World. Military campaigns were more often a bloody stalemate, if not an outright loss of colonist numbers. And while there was always a musket in the colonist's grip, his other hand would be open for exchange. After all, what's the point in conquering the land if they couldn't extract wealth from it? Which, actually, come to think of it. How are you going to get labor all the way across the Atlantic? You might recognize that voice. That's Guy Emerson Mount, Assistant Professor of African American History at Auburn University. To these largely tropical environments, in order to extract sugar, cotton, tobacco, the cash crops, as well as in Latin America, the 
the silver mines, the gold mines that were there. How are you going to get people to work on it? Well, the first thing they tried to do were just enslave indigenous peoples. As Doug mentioned earlier, taking captives was a common indigenous practice throughout the world. Just as European colonizers hijacked this practice in West Africa, there was an opportunity to do the same in the Americas. In fact, colonization was made feasible by twisting old world slavery into an entire economic system of chattel slavery, which extracted wealth from stolen land. One could not be achieved without the other. The slave trade for indigenous peoples was much larger than the scholars have previously taken credit for. There was an active slave trade between enslaved Native American peoples and then enslaved African peoples in the Caribbean. An estimated two and a half to five million indigenous people were enslaved throughout the Americas, nearly half of the 12.5 million Africans who were ensnared in Caribbean and North American slavery. This idea that it's kind of a binary system, that people of African descent would be exclusively eligible for enslavement, that took time to develop. And it wasn't a preconceived kind of idea in the pre-modern world. Just as the children of European men and their African mistresses profited from procuring and selling captives on Africa's Gold Coast, so too did colonists take native brides and gain an intermediate position between indigenous communities and European colonies. As relations grew and peace treaties were signed, indigenous tribes increasingly participated in the raiding, capturing, and selling of other indigenous, and then later African, people into chattel slavery. Two coasts, an ocean apart, were morphed by the arrival and presence of European imperialism and commerce. The indigenous slave trade would remain one of the primary sources of labor in the Americas, Caribbean, Europe, and even in a few colonies in Asia until about 1717, at the close of the Abassi War, a three-year conflict sparked by the multi-ethnic, multi-tribal confederation who originally banded together near the Savannah River. The Amassi's history is deep and complicated, so do yourself a favor and check out part one of Teaching Tolerance's podcast, Indigenous Enslavement. It's linked on this episode's page. Now, as historian Christina Snyder points out, there are several important outcomes of the Amassi War. One is that many native tribes stopped participating in the indigenous slave trade. The other is that the colonies were so terrified by the ferocity of the tribes they fought against that they no longer saw indigenous people as enslavable. The transatlantic slave trade picks up, and now you have more of a hardened racial categorization of the red savage, the black slave, and the white colonist doing what they wished to both. One can make the same kinds of arguments about King Philip's War, which is the bloodiest in American history. The shift from indigenous enslavement and increasingly toward enslaving Africans is because of the scale of devastating violence and just horrific bloodshed. Colonists first tried to civilize indigenous people by Christianizing them with the end goal of forcing bad deals onto native tribes. When that failed, they tried to enslave indigenous people as they were deemed heathens and thus uncivilized by blood. Yet all the while, violence surged as colonists claimed the Americas as their own. 
An all-out genocide was decelerated to an unending cycle of wars, massacres, forced and then broken treaties. And that is what legal blood quantum is really founded on. The legacies of enslavement, violence, and the processes by which Europeans stole the land that belonged to nobody save the Earth herself. After the break, how blood was used to carve the U.S. out of Indian territories and diminish native populations in the 19th century. This show takes a lot of time and dedication, which, you know, I'm here for. But it also takes listeners like yourself to support its creation. If you love this show, please consider joining the Lotto Thought Patreon. All proceeds help pay for domain hosting, the occasional additional music licensing that sometimes pops up outside of APMs and Makai McRaven's generously provided tracks, and any additional sound editing or engineering. The show's Patreon account is linked on our site, so please, whatever you can offer will help this show to continue to exist. And you get a few perks for joining, such as FaceTime with me, your host, C.A. Davis, where you can ask me all sorts of technical how-tos or just general podcasting advice. All right, thank you, and I look forward to shout-out new patrons on the next show. Speaking of, let's get back to it. these tents at which people are directed to. This is Ariella Gross. She's the John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History at USC's Gould School of Law. To either go to the Indian tent or the, quote, Negro tent, that was the federal government who come up with this Jim Crow enrollment during the land allotment process that's happening at the turn of the 20th century. If the 17th and 18th centuries established the boundaries of blood inside the body, then the 19th century determined how blood would establish the boundaries of the land itself. A lot happened throughout the 1800s. Gold rushes from Georgia to California fueled grandiose claims of America's manifest destiny, dealing tremendous violence on tribes living throughout the Great Plains. A permanent means of moving resources, mail, and people across the entire continent, the Transcontinental Railroad, was completed by Chinese wage laborers whose severely underpaid work filled the gaps of a floundering economic system in a post-Civil War in newly emancipated United States. And of course, the Trail of Tears from 1831 to 1850. Yeah, I'm, I'm still jumping through time. There's really no way to avoid it. Colonizers wanted land. It helped if there were fewer Indians, right? So the mantra of the 19th century was kill the Indian, save the man. This uh, cultural evolutionary idea that you could whiten the red man, right? Mixing was, of course, commonplace. But the logic of who belonged to a tribe was manipulated by U.S. racial schemes. 
While the red body could become white, either through biological reproduction or cultural assimilation, the black body would always be black. Remember, racism comes first, then race, and finally beliefs become solidified as social realities. As John Ross, one of the most revered chiefs in Cherokee history, and who was born to a Scottish father and a Scottish Cherokee mother, led his tribe across the Trail of Tears, he forced along their 4,000 enslaved black folks to the reservation in the Great Plains. Peoples who are in different ways fighting for self-determination, fighting against a the white power structure, but are doing it in different ways and sometimes in a way that is about triangulation. If we can look to the powers that be enough like them and keep this other group down, we can get this intermediate position that can raise us up. Eventually, all five tribes sided with the Confederacy, despite internal divide about slavery and colonial racial casting. Tribes were motivated to broker deals with the South, in part by a shared disdain for the federal government that forced their removal 30 years prior. After the Civil War, the tribes had to sign treaties in order to be readmitted into the United States because um, many of them had fought with the Confederacy. Those treaties in 1866 say all black people in the five so-called civilized tribes must be full members of their nation, whether they had been enslaved or not. A stipulation that affected the federal government's attempt to eradicate what it had called the Indian problem. It also highlighted the inconsistencies between race and tribal belonging. There were lots of cases of Creeks only speaking Muskogee Creek and instances where one sister was deemed Indian and the other was Negro, depending on how they looked. This is Darnella Davis. And um, what do I do? Visual arts and graphic design, fashion illustration, writing. And at this stage in life, I am an independent scholar. She's the author of Untangling a Red, White, and Black Heritage, and member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, and descendant of the Cherokee Freedmen. When allotment comes along, federal policies shape their identities, contrasting from how they thought about themselves. By 1886, North and South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Arizona were all territories of varying degrees, mostly inhabited by the hundreds of indigenous tribes who had been constantly relocated by colonial advancement for centuries. That's when a bill named after the otherwise unimportant Massachusetts senator who sponsored it gained enormous popularity. The Dawes Act the enrollment process, the land allotment process. Was about breaking up collective ownership of reservation land holdings. The hope was to end nomadism and indigenous communal land practices. The U.S. government says, hey, let's take all your land held in common, break it up, and then 
allot it to Indian individuals. That eventually become subject to taxation by state and local authorities as privately owned taxable land. And they say all the rest that we're, we're going to call surplus we'll keep for ourselves <laughs> or sell to white people. What followed were decades of detribalization, stripping indigenous communities of governmental power and making their lands purchasable by the federal government or its white settlers. But there was one just tiny problem. How was the U.S. government to determine who was or was not, quote-unquote, Indian? Genocide was not complete for the ones that survived the Indian Wars, the massacres, starvation, relocation. At the beginning of the reservation era, base roles are the first roles constructed to document and register tribal citizens. And blood quantum is part of this same assimilative process of stripping Native people of their land, forced boarding school education, and imposing American ideas about what a quote-unquote real Indian even is, about who is and is not indigenous. Your land was allotted depending on the purity of your Indian blood, which is debatable. So if you were, say, more than half, scare quotes around those words too, right? Native, you would not necessarily get title to your land because the cultural evolutionary thought at the time was that you were not civilized enough to manage that. Let's say you really are a, a full blood. The presumption was that you probably didn't speak English and you probably weren't very wise to the ways of the capitalist system. You were living on common lands. Everything was just shared. For those deemed incompetent, the federal government held their land in a trust status managed by a local agent of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Individuals would have to prove themselves competent, become a Christian, dress like an American, speak English, participate in commerce, or else they'd have to wait 25 years before their land trusts would be given to them, if they were even still alive. The idea was that so-called full-blooded Indians would have the opportunity to assimilate themselves into capitalist culture. These laws were always centered on whiteness. So if you had enough documented white family members... They expected you to know a little bit more, and they eased the restrictions thinking that you would be able to judge whether selling your land was a good thing or a bad thing. All right, now, you remember those treaties from the end of the Civil War? They allowed the five tribes to remain exempt from the Dawes Act. Well, until 1898, after lawmakers leveraged enough pressure on the federal government to create a state north of Texas. And so when land was being allotted to the five tribes, the BIA also had to allot land to their freedmen, as was enforced by those treaties in 1866. In order to do that, the BIA segregated their roles, meaning... The one-drop rule largely prevailed as a determinant of blackness, and the Dawes roles are now widely viewed as flawed at best. Regardless of whether or not these folks were emancipated and living on tribal lands, or if they had tribal ancestors, black natives were in their own segregated category for allotment. And they did get land. 
unlike black folks who were newly emancipated citizens of the United States. But it was never consistent, and the regulations for freedmen allotments were incredibly lenient. Generally, for the Creeks and Cherokee, it was about on parity for the freedmen. And in some cases, it appears that the freedmen got a bit less. But the freedmen, when they were allotted land, they eased the restrictions. You see, freedmen didn't have to file for approval of land sales to the BIA. Whereas those who were categorized as quote-unquote half or more native did have to file those land sales or were just outright restricted from selling land allotments entirely, which meant that the freedmen were easy targets for land grifters to cheat them from their land at unfairly low prices. And they kept tweaking the restrictions over the years as well. Which is precisely what happened over the next 20 years while Oklahoma was becoming a state. If you haven't already, go check out Rebecca Nagel's podcast, This Land, which talks about how allotted lands were violently swindled from Cherokee people during Oklahoma's formation. Kirsty Gover's work shows that at the early part of the 20th century, the concept of total Indian blood that the feds had, they weren't interested in tribal-specific lineages. When they cared, whether you were a half-blood, quarter-blood, full-blood, what they were talking about is a mixture of ancestries from multiple different tribes. They were thinking race, not tribe. But that changes again after another evolution of the idea and use of blood quantum at the turn of the 20th century. Abstracted notions that Americans come up with really come to inflict tremendous violence on Native communities, families, and relationships, and our own sense of being and identity. And that's all what it's intended to do. After the break, re-racializing Native bodies, authentic belonging, and the shrinking boundaries of blood quantum. Normally, I would use this break to thank and promote APM Music for their generous support to this show, but this episode's music was provided by Grammy-nominated cellist, composer, and Mohawk descendant Don Avery, whose music creates a contemporary soundscape from spiritual, pop, and classical elements. And I think you'll find that to be true throughout this episode. So, thank you, Don, and let's get back to the show. Um, I don't have it in front of me. My tribal enrollment card says 132nd Siston uh, Wapton Oyate, and that's actually where I'm enrolled. Well, that's my great grandfather. He wasn't uh, full blood, he was considered three quarters, right? And so it says one quarter shine in Arapaho blood. That's my maternal grandfather who was considered full blood. So I've got 116th this, 132nd that, one quarter that. Each of those fractions actually refers to a particular ancestor that is named in the documentation that is in my tribal citizenship file at my tribe. If you're a little lost, I, I feel you. Blood quantum put in practice gets confusing real quick. Yeah. Yeah. We've been racialized in 
different ways. By the Dawes era and during detribalization, the prevailing racial narrative was that Native Americans would over time be eliminated not with bullets and steel, but by the dilution of their blood. A concept that has stuck around well past the 1930s when the federal government tried to make amends to over 500 indigenous tribes. We will break foolish tradition. The 18th Amendment is doomed. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. During the Great Depression, one of the imperatives set off by FDR's New Deal was the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 which was the end result of a report issued by Congress a decade earlier, in 1924. This report found that the Dawes Act and allotment had destroyed the well-being of remaining reservations and many of the lives of those who were still living on their allotted lands. So reorganization was meant to re-establish tribal governments and restore indigenous sovereignty over their people, their land, and newly allocated federal resources. Now, if that all sounds too good to be true, well, that's because it was. There's always a catch. The Indian Reorganization Act helped organize and certify tribes from within a settler worldview as legitimately able to be a self-governing entity. So when a tribe is coming up, as say they're not formally recognized historically through treaty relations with the U.S. government, there's now an Office of Federal Acknowledgement within the Bureau of Indian Affairs that will parade in a bunch of experts, anthropologists and historians quite often are legal scholars, many of them non-native. And these are the experts who get to decide whether an indigenous people is worthy of recognition by the settler state, right? And blood quantum, this matters. Throughout the allotment era, the Bureau of Indian Affairs determined whether an individual's body was too uncivilized to privately own land. But during reorganization, the BIA determined for indigenous people entire groups, whether or not they were surviving in a cohesive indigenous community. And they pushed blood quantum as one of the means of determining who would be recognized as a legitimate Native American member of a legit Native American tribe. And there's the catch. Blood quantum can make absolutely no sense and create divisions where there needn't be any certain communities get broken up into multiple communities. In the Oneida Nation uh, of of Wisconsin, for instance, my own nation, New York is is our ancestral homelands. Most people uh, moved to Wisconsin, some moved to Ontario. And now these are three separate nations politically that all have a right to determine their citizenship independently of one another. One can have ancestry from the Oneida Nation of New York, but that doesn't count toward one's blood quantum for becoming a citizen of the Wisconsin community. And so it turns out that one of the most celebrated historical figures of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin's 20th century history was not biologically Oneida, and thus was never able to be legally a tribal member and have the rights of tribal membership. Her name was Lily Rose Minoka Hill. She was a Mohawk woman, the closest relative to the Oneida Nation in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and married an Oneida man. Started a family 
and then spent the majority of her life practicing medicine in the Oneida, Wisconsin community. She was often the only medical services available on the reservation. Today, there's a monument and a med school in Dr. Minoka Hill's honor. On her monument is an inscription in Oneida that reads, I was sick and you visited me. This is how important she was to her community. In a pre-colonial sense, there would be no barrier whatsoever to, to this woman, Dr. Hill, being a full member of Oneida society in this 20th century context because of the American language of, of blood. The legalities of it suddenly come to draw these stark divisions then. Dr. Hill can be adopted in a cultural sense, like in a, uh, in a symbolic sense. In a symbolic sense. That's really the issue at hand. In 2020, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had $1.9 billion budgeted towards operations and direct assistance to American Indian and Alaska Native service populations, $1 billion below the 2017 budget. Just like land, resources are appropriated to indigenous nations using zero-sum thinking. That $1.9 billion has to be used equitably between 567 tribes whose member numbers vary greatly. And while it may not seem fair that blood quantum prevented someone like Dr. Minoka Hill from being a full member of the tribe that they're living in, it also is one of the only tools that we have at the present to answer questions about who is and is not going to have a right to, to vote in our elections and you know access social services that are for us. But tribal enrollment and citizenship rules are complicated. They're not just about blood quantum. Each tribe gets to decide for themselves how to enroll their members into their nations. That's what sovereignty is about. The Shine and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, which I'm eligible for uh, enrollment, they require one quarter Shine and Arapaho blood, not just lineal descent. Whereas my tribe in South Dakota says lineal descent from the base role plus one quarter total Indian blood. So they'll count Shine and Arapaho, they'll count Siston Wapton, they'll count my great grandmother's. Um, Turtle Mountain Chippewa. So it's very different from tribe to tribe. And even though we've attempted to expunge notions of race from deciding authentic belonging. Race definitely continues to influence the BIA and Native communities when it comes to determining who does or does not count as kin. Cherokee Nation has more than 300,000 enrolled members, the largest in America, whereas the Augustine Band of the Colia currently has 11 tribal members. But what if the BIA finally awarded the 55,000 Lumbee people with federal recognition as a cohesive tribe? Well, with the U.S. cutting BIA budgets year over year, well-founded anxieties over a shrinking pot of resources are pressurized by the possibility of federally recognizing a tribe as large as the Lumbee. Those shrinking resources would have to accommodate 55,000 more people. Now, as for why the Lumbee were never granted federal recognition after the Reorganization Act, uh, they were descendants of several Carolina tribes who intermarried with white and black folks in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I might be going on a limb here, but I'm guessing that race has got something to do with it.
More than 300 million in contracts intended for minorities were awarded to members of self-described Cherokee groups that are considered illegitimate by federally recognized tribes. This is Ken Descombs, who also goes by the name of Gray Elk. He is chief of the Northern Cherokee Nation, and he is pictured here in the group's headquarters in rural Missouri. Adam Elmerich and Paul Pringle at the LA Times reported on this just last year. You can find the link to the article and full video on this episode's webpage. Except that the Northern Cherokee Nation is not a recognized Native American tribe. Government records show ancestors of the members whose companies received contracts set aside for minorities were white. Daryl LaRue, as well as Cersei Sturm, writes on the term race shifter, white people, who are attempting to claim Métis and in Cersei's book, claim Cherokee. These are the people like Warren. Cherokee genealogists and other experts say unsubstantiated claims to being Native American are common. They typically are based on family stories. Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democratic candidate for president, long asserted Cherokee ancestry was just going based on, on some family, family lore with no documentable connection to the tribes or peoples that they're claiming. One contractor has a famous family connection. His brother-in-law is House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Bill Wage has got more than $7 million in federal contracts by getting certified into the SBA program. He belongs to the Northern Cherokee Nation, one of the self-described tribes. His contracts were for work in and around McCarthy's district. Wages but there's a whole lot of people who have actual ancestral connection to those peoples, but for whatever reason, their social connection was disrupted. People are used to the idea of white-skinned natives. It's been accepted by both white and Native Americans for centuries. And while pretendians, as they're called, get away with millions of dollars, black natives were routinely abandoned throughout history. There are a number of these groups of mixed Indian, African, and European ancestry, kind of up and down the eastern seaboard. Ariella Gross joining us again referred to by anthropologists in the middle of the 20th century as triracial isolates. And many of them originate in a period in colonial Virginia when there is a lot of reason for servants and various degrees of bondage, people of African and indigenous and European ancestry get together as allies. And there are a lot of efforts to keep them apart. And the communities that result, they, they start out in that kind of legal category of free people of color, and then they take different paths. Groups like the Lumbee have taken different stances throughout history in their efforts to attain sovereignty, at times outright rejecting their African-descended kin. Anti-blackness was a proven method for racially mixed tribes, such as the Seminole, remember one of the five so-called civilized tribes, to gain their sovereignty and protect their allocated resources within the reign of a racist settler colonial empire, a history that remains alive with us today. We're ready. My name is Leetta Osborne Sampson. I'm a council representative of Seminole Nation. And I am a Seminole freedman. This is our third protest. We've asked Channel 459, 43, 13, 25, 
all the stations of Oklahoma City, newspaper, Daily Oklahoma, Black Chronicle. We've asked all of them to come out and hear our cry of being discriminated against by our own nation. And none of them came out. So today we have to turn to YouTube to get the word out that we are being discriminated against by our own nation because we are black. Not because we're Indian, but because we are black. We have black blood. We are counting every year for the money that they get for all the government programs and they vote us out every year of those programs. In 2014, they cut us off our medical because we are black and they say we have the wrong cards. Well, I say who gave us those cards is our nation and they know we belong there. But that's a story for later in this series. We'll come back to that. I promise. This transition from total Indian blood to tribal-specific ancestries is not something simply imposed by the feds, but rather tribes are attempting to tweak, manipulate, and work with their own concepts of blood and inheritance. And yes, it's totally compromised, but the U.S. is a settler empire. Look how powerful it is across the world. It makes sense that there is not an enormous amount of room to maneuver by indigenous peoples within its own territory. Nations do not make treaties with racial groups. The United States made treaties with native people as nations. And it's in the United States' own framing and origins and, and in the Constitution itself that native people do constitute a separate and distinct political body. And yet, Native Americans are routinely thought of first as a racial group, which completely ignores the complicated dynamics of indigenous nationhood. Despite the disruptions to our familial organization and our kinship strategies, I still see us doing a lot to maintain long-standing ways of thinking about kin. We still have ceremonial adoptions. They're not that widespread, but they happen. They're contemporary manifestations. They're not exactly the same, right? Because we're living in a colonial structure. Blood quantum is, is meant to measure so we can get to zero. That they can rid the continent of people who identify at all as indigenous. If we adhere to this math equation, the fewer number of native people you have identifying as members of native polities and insisting on having rights as such. It's not that it's a softer form of genocide. It is genocide in slow motion. Somebody on Team Trump referred to, we're looking for an off-ramp. As I look at the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, I think it's time for a dialogue. What are we going to be a hundred years from now? Is there an off-ramp? Is there an off-ramp? The idea is that people can become part of the multicultural American nation and celebrate their own ethnic heritage in which indigenous nations politically and in terms of governance disappear. That's what these people are referring to when they say the off-ramp. The past and the future actively create the present. 
Fractions commonly used to identify ourselves and others come from centuries of oppression, violence, and broken treaties. And even though blood is land, is sovereignty, it's come to be how we see ourselves too. I remember one time we were at the grocery store and I just remember kind of like people staring because, you know, I, I stood out as the only little black girl just in the grocery store, with, like surrounded by Native Americans. Next time on In Our Blood. In the post-emancipation period, you don't have legal deeds to someone anymore. Now it's this question of how are you going to replicate slavery as much as possible? Who are you going to hold down? Who are you going to racialize? Chapter 2, One Equal Citizenship. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by me, C.A. Many thanks to this episode's guests, Kim Tallbear, Monica Desarden, Doug Keel, Guy Emerson Mount, Ariella Gross, and Darnella Davis. And a huge thanks to Grammy-nominated cellist and Mohawk descendant, Don Avery. And also a couple tracks, the one you're hearing now, was provided by Micaiah McRaven. If you haven't listened to him yet, then I don't know what to tell you. I've been telling you this whole time to check him out. I think you should. He's great. And sound effects were created by Boom SFX, who generously provided an educational discount for A Lot of Thought. Last but not least, support the show by going to alotofthought.com and signing up for the mailing list, rate and review on iTunes, that helps a lot. And please do consider joining the A Lot of Thought Patreon, which helps pay for domain hosting, the occasional additional music licensing that sometimes pops up outside of APMs and Makai McRaven's generously provided tracks, and additional editing and sound engineering. The show's Patreon account is linked on our site. Alright y'all, stay tuned for the next two chapters of In Our Blood. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.